Uh, my goodness, Christmas has become an octopus. I don't, I don't know. Uh, if you think about how ubiquitous Christmas is at the tail end of every year, Black Friday used to sort of start it on the shopping side of things, but now Black Friday is before Black Friday. It's before Thanksgiving. Yeah, and then uh, it extends. If you figure you go to the stores to return or exchange gifts afterwards, it's definitely more than the month of December. So there's a lot going on too, by the way, for all kinds of people. The American culture has certainly changed dramatically in the last 50 years or so. Uh, What Christmas means to you or to me may have no resemblance to what Christmas means to someone else, to your neighbors, folks you work with, etc., It may simply mean gift-giving. It may simply mean getting together with family or friends around the holidays, which which is, of course, a great thing, too. Someone asked you, what is Christmas all about? What's your short answer? What's Christmas all about, or or why Christmas, or what's Christmas to you or to your family? What's the answer you'd give? Off the top, unrehearsed. (laughs) The correct answer, Jesus, yes. (laughs) Well done. Uh, One of the best answers to that, certainly one of the most memorable, is uh, from that stellar theologian, Charles Schultz. Is there anyone here who has not seen a Charlie Brown Christmas special? Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Well, one or two. Uh, I believe it uh, came out in the 60s, and really I suppose it shows just by way of what a TV special made then and was airing then, maybe the difference in, in where we are today versus then. But if you remember, for those who have seen it, remember the scene, uh, Charlie Brown, God bless him, is trying to direct the Christmas pageant. And he's having nothing but trouble. You know, everybody's doing the dust dance to Schroeder's piano playing on stage. He can't get anybody to listen to him and get things coordinated for that Christmas pageant. And so in exasperation, he cries out, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And famously, it's certainly the highlight of the 30-minute show. Uh, Linus goes to center stage, the house lights dim, the spotlight comes on Linus, and Linus quotes Luke 2, verses 8 through 14. This is what he says. There were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field. By the way, I hope you hear Linus's voice, not mine. That's, that's half the fun, isn't it? Keeping watch over their flock by night, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on peace, goodwill toward men. Linus concluded, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And we would say, of course, amen, so it is. The text out of Luke 2 focuses on a very particular reason for the incarnation. Very particular reason. Look at verse 11 if you have a Bible or your app open. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. So Luke 2 centers on Jesus' role as a Savior 
He's the anointed one, so he's Christ, he's anointed, and he's the Lord, he's God in flesh. But the reason for the shepherds hearing the angels and for the angels glorifying God is because Jesus has come as a Savior. That's the role that's being highlighted. That's the reason for the incarnation from this passage in Luke 2. That raises a question, I hope. You know, sometimes if a text is familiar to you, we read over its content because we haven't thought about its familiar text. We don't necessarily run it through our minds to say, what is that actually talking about? So, what did they need saving from? Jesus comes as a Savior. So last week we said he's a king, to be sure. But this week, if he's a Savior, what's he saving you from? That's a key question. So, you know, if you read the term save or salvation or saved through Scripture, it has a variety of meanings. So our minds might go to one, but that's not true in the text of Scripture. You can be saved from all kinds of things, all kinds of trouble. So context determines what being saved means. What does it mean for Jesus to be born as a Savior? If you're a Jew around the birth of Jesus and someone says, uh, the Messiah has arrived to save us, my suspicion is you're thinking about national salvation. You're thinking about the Messiah coming and kicking the Romans out, Messiah coming as the king who saves the nation of Israel. So the bad guys get kicked out, the good guys get blessed because the messianic king has come and, and he's raising up Israel again and it's going to be like um, Solomon's day but better. So it's all about the nation. It's all about Jews and the Jewish nation being saved from oppression. And we know that's still going to happen, right? Jesus still has a role as the Messianic King who's yet to come. We've talked about this much in the past. That's going to happen. But the physical and national safety and deliverance for Israel didn't require the incarnation. God could miraculously deliver Israel as he did in Old Testament, couldn't he? I mean, read the Old Testament, Kings and Chronicles. God miraculously defeats enemies and supports the nation. And under Solomon, there's this grand golden age in which the wealth of the world comes to them, and Solomon and Israel are the top of the heap, just like they'll be in the future. So that's, the incarnation's not needed for that. So we're not talking about that kind of salvation, though that would have been the Jewish expectation. In Luke 1, Zechariah the priest, who laid in life with his elderly wife, had a little fella called John, we know as John the Baptist. Zechariah, after he regained his voice, little boy had been born, he says by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is Luke 1, 76 and 77, talking to and about his son and about the role his son plays in introducing the Messiah. This is part of what he said, you child, his son John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord, Jesus is Lord, to prepare his ways. But verse 77 tells us to give to his people the knowledge of salvation. So Zechariah tells us that the incarnation is coming because it has to do with salvation. And then he defines what kind of saving he's talking about by the forgiveness of their sins. The saving you need that Luke is pointing out is salvation from sin. Forget the national hope for the moment. You need to be saved from sin. It would be possible, think of it this way. 
you got all kinds of Old Testament texts that talk about the Messianic reign, the millennial reign in Israel, the Messiah reign from Jerusalem, the blessing that'll be to Israel, the blessing that'll be to the earth. But think of this. If you were born in that future millennial reign, or if you were born in the golden days of Solomon, wouldn't matter. If you lived a thousand years under the most blessed form of governments, there's a chicken in every pot, no one's oppressed, life's as good as it can be on planet earth, and then that, that period ends, you'd die and you'd be judged for your sin. You could experience heaven on earth for a long time and you're still going to die and you're still going to answer for your sin, right? So if all you get from salvation is Israel's national deliverance, it ain't enough because they still die and they still answer to a holy God for their sin. We need saving from sin. We need saving from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and ultimately, of course, the presence of sin. And that's the salvation Jesus came to give then. It's the salvation that still matters to you and I today preeminently. So you see the same thing in Matthew's gospel. This is Matthew 1, 18 through 23. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. So Joseph is engaged to Mary, but there's a complication. She's pregnant, and this is not his child. The angel says, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She's not been unfaithful. There is no human father to the child she's carrying. This is God's doing. She will bear a son, and you will call his name. So the angel tells, speaking for God, tells Joseph, you don't name this child, God names this child. You remember that whoever names has authority. Parents name their kids because they're the authority. Well, the angel tells Joseph, you're not the one giving the name, God's giving the name. You're going you're gonna to use it, but God is giving him the name, and the name he's giving him is Jesus. Now, we just might say, you know, that's a lovely Jewish name, isn't it? There's probably a few Joshua's in our setting this morning. Uh, that's the Old Testament. Joshua is the same name. Yahoshua, same name. So Joshua, the book of Joshua, the hero of Israelite faith from back in the day. Lovely name, right? But that's not why God the Father says he's going to be called Jesus, is it? Because Jesus in Hebrew means God saves. And this is what he, he says, you'll call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So the Jewish expectation for salvation is national. But in the incarnation, these key Christmas texts say it's about saving people from sin. It's the bigger issue. It's the bigger problem. So then this raises a question. How will Jesus save his own people in Israel from sin? And how will he save you and I from sin today? What does his salvation look like? And how is it brought about? So last week we looked at Jesus as the promised king in his incarnation. And the real challenge for us was living and thinking of Jesus as the king we serve under. Not merely our savior, but he's the king that we give a king's obedience and respect to. This morning we're going to look at Jesus' incarnation as a savior. And we're going to do so through the lens of his fulfilling God's role as a priest. He's Savior, but how does he go about being our Savior? What does that role require? What does it entail? That's fulfilling God's chosen role for him as a priest as well. So Jesus becomes our Savior because he's our high priest. That's where we're going. 
And because as our high priest, he offered himself as the adequate atoning sacrifice for the guilt of our sin. So he's come to save us. The salvation is from sin. And the way he accomplishes that salvation is he takes on a priesthood by which he offers himself. That's the big picture related to the incarnation and Jesus as Savior. If you want, turn to Genesis 14. We'll take a brief look there to sort of set this up. Around 2000 BC, when Abraham is in the land of promise, God took him out of Ur, brings him around the Fertile Crescent. He's, he's in the land of promise, and he's thriving there. And Lot, his nephew, had come with him. And God blesses him, and their herds grow, and their flocks grow, and they get to the point where there's quarreling. And so Abraham says, hey, Lot, you go wherever you want, and I'll go the opposite direction, no strife. So Lot goes down to the valley along the river, and near the city of Sodom. And what happens is he eventually becomes a resident. He's not a shepherd anymore, or at least not the way Abram is out in the fields. He's living in the city of Sodom. And while that's going on, while he's living there, some kings from the east come into that land. And they ransack all these cities. And they take everybody hostage, and they take all the wealth of those cities with them as the booty of war. And they're starting to head back. They're going to flee, and they're going to get out of trouble's way. Well, Abraham hears this. And so his, lot, his nephew Lot has been taken. He's going to do something about it. So he's got a very extensive household. He's got lots of men. He rallies them together. He gets some allies that live in that area also. And they go chase those guys down. And they defeat them militarily. And they save all the people that had been taken hostage. And they bring all the booty of war, the battle, back with them. And as they're coming back, they get to the city of Jerusalem. And that's where this takes place. Genesis 14, 17 through 20. After his return from the defeat of the kings, this is of Abram, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, blessed Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, guys, this Melchizedek, he comes out of nowhere and he goes into nowhere. This is this crazy uh, singular incident. You don't know anything about him. You haven't heard anything about him. And you don't know anything more about him for a thousand years. So it's strange because we know Abram is God's man. But this guy is said to be the priest of God Most High. And you might think, okay, he's a Gentile and he's living in the Jebusite city, but the, the language is clear that the language Abraham uses and Melchizedek used, they're worshiping the same God, it's Yahweh. So he's a priest of God Most High. His name means, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. His name defined means he's the king of righteousness. As the king of righteousness, he's also the king of the city of Jerusalem, or in short form, Salem. We might say Shalom today. He's the king of peace because that's what the name of the city he rules over means. He's the king of peace. He plays host to Abram because he brings out wine and bread to him. He's celebrating his fate, the victory he's accomplished, but he's hosting him. He blesses Abram in God's name as God's priest, God's representative. He's assuming a higher priority than Abram has. 
He blesses Abram in God's name, and Abram acknowledges him as his superior when he receives Melchizedek's blessing. Scripture's clear on this. This comes out in Hebrews. The greater always blesses the lesser. Melchizedek is greater than Abram because he gives the blessing to Abram. Abram receives the blessing, and he gives Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils of war. So he's honoring Melchizedek as the one who can give the blessing and the one who can receive the offering, as it were, the spoils of war, the tenth part of the spoils. So you have a king of righteousness and peace ruling over the city of Jerusalem, who is also a priest, and Abram's superior. So there's lots of questions. And guys, if you read commentaries on this, it's all over the place on who Melchizedek is, who he isn't. He's Jesus incarnate. He's not Jesus incarnate. It's a literary device. All we care about is what the text says. So that's all we know. He shows up and he's gone for a thousand years. And he comes up again under King David. When King David is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing songs of worship to God, Melchizedek comes up again in one of his songs that we call Psalm 110. So David, again, by inspiration, he knows his heir someplace down the line is the Messiah. He knows his descendant will be the Savior God is going to send for Israel. He knows that, and he's writing about him. So this is Psalm 110. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, my Adonai, Messiah, my descendant who is my greater, my better, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verses 2 and 3 talk about Messiah is going to rule over friend and foe and his, his friends are going to gladly serve him. And then verse 4 says this, the Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Messiah, the king, is also a priest. David's promised messianic son, who will come as king, is also said to be here by David. He's also a priest, and he's a priest forever, and he's a priest like Melchizedek was a priest. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, David writes that God's anointed king who reigns forever will be God's chosen priest forever. So the priest king Melchizedek from Genesis 14 becomes this representation at least of the priest king God would send through David's line. In Psalm 110 we see that the Messiah would not only be king who would reign from Jerusalem forever, but he would also be a priest forever. And friends, Psalm 110 is quoted more often than any other psalm in the New Testament, this key thought of Messiah and priest. So like Melchizedek, the Messiah would be both king and priest, Psalm 110. Unlike the other kings of Judah, the Messiah would combine those two roles in one person. Remember we talked recently, when Judah's kings assumed the prerogatives of a priesthood, it never went well. So when King Saul did that, God says, you're done. You're not going to be my king. And I believe it was King Uzziah did it too, and God struck him with leprosy. Because they, as kings, they said, well, hey, I'll just serve as a priest too. And God said, no, no, no. But this king is going to be both king and priest. So when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so we're skipping forward a thousand years again, so go to the incarnation stories. When he's born in Bethlehem, he lived under the Mosaic covenant. 
So the relationship Jesus has as a Jew in the days he, he is born, he's living in a covenant with his father Yahweh. He's doing so through the covenant God established at Sinai. The tribe of Levi provided the priests. The descendants of Aaron were the high priests. So Jesus was presented at the temple under that priesthood that was given at Sinai. He lived faithfully under the covenant from Sinai throughout his lifetime, and he didn't question the legitimacy of that priesthood. But here's the transition, Luke 22. When Jesus celebrated what we call the Last Supper with the disciples, he presented bread and wine just as Melchizedek had to Abram. Now we know it's the Passover meal they're celebrating, but we don't want to miss the intentionality God's showing us. This is what Melchizedek did, and this is what Jesus is doing. But now he takes the bread of the Passover meal and he said it would represent his body soon to be broken in crucifixion for their sin. So it's not having to do with deliverance from Egypt from here going forth, but the bread that's been presented by Jesus to his followers, it's going to represent his body broken for their sins, for their salvation. And he said that the wine they drank that night as part of the Passover meal would now celebrate his blood about to be shed on the cross for their sin. And he said that this blood was the blood of the new covenant. This is a big theme, but his blood on the cross is the blood of the new covenant, which means the old covenant is coming to an end. So the old covenant was instituted with sacrifice and blood. If you remember, you go way back, uh, Moses, uh, I think it was goats and lambs, and he sprinkles the people with the blood. He said, this is the blood of the covenant. Well, here's the new covenant. Jesus says it's going to be in my blood. Jesus was instituting a new covenant under which our sins could be fully forgiven because they would be fully covered by the death of our Savior King, the Lord Jesus. The book of Hebrews, which is where we're going to spend pretty much the balance of our time, demonstrates that the old covenant God gave at Sinai could never adequately save anyone from sin. Um, anybody who has this thought that I can do something by which my sins can be forgiven, it's a mistaken notion from start to finish. And if you start in Genesis 4, in the first offerings of worship you see by Abel, up to and including the covenant God made, and, and by God's command, remember, they were offering animal sacrifice, blood was being spilled for sin all along the way, morning and night, and you sinned, you went and you made your offering. In the Day of the Atonement, the high priest makes an offering for himself so he can make an offering for the people. There was blood being shed all the time, and guys, none of it did any good for anyone's sin. They, they were all pictures of the perfect sacrifice that would come, but all that time people understood I've sinned and i got to do something, or God's got to do something for me, by which I can be saved from the penalty due my sin. So this is, let's see, so a new better covenant with a new better priest and a new and better offering was needed to deliver from sin. By the way, the book of Hebrews is uh, dense with Old Testament quotation. It's written from someone who was a Jew to Jewish believers who were being tempted to forsake Christ because life was getting hard for them because they were Jewish believers in Jesus. And so the whole book is written against the Old Testament, Old Covenant backdrop 
to say Jesus is, is better than and he's the fulfillment of everything that came before and you got to stick in the race. you got to continue in faith to the end. Don't draw back. It's not worth it. Jesus is the one you need to know and follow. Hebrews uses the Old Testament character Melchizedek as a means of comparing and contrasting Jesus, his role as priest and offering with the Old Covenant roles of priest and offering. Melchizedek is referred to by name eight times in Hebrews as the author helps us see the role Jesus plays as Savior. So Hebrews shows us that Jesus has come as Savior by becoming our new better priest. So this is where the Melchizedek comes up. Jesus can save you because he's going to become your new priest. This is Hebrews 2 verse 17. Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to make a sacrifice adequate to reconcile a holy God with sinful men. Had to happen. That's the reason, Hebrews says, for the incarnation. Jesus, God the Son, had to be made like one of us. Hebrews 3.1 calls Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. The apostle, the sent one of God, and the high priest of our confession. Hebrews 4.14-16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So this is Jesus' post-resurrection ascension back into heaven, which Hebrews tells us is the real temple. It's the real place. Everything on earth that is this image, the tabernacle, the tent, or the temple of Solomon, it was representations of what really existed in heaven. So Jesus has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest, Christ now, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is, in every respect, tempted as we are, but without sin." Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, I love that verse 16. Uh, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now guys, this is the new covenant. Now put this in contrast for just a second. Hold that thought. So Jesus, this is talking about the benefit of the new covenant, Jesus' blood. What did the institution of the old covenant look like? So Exodus 19 and 20. You know, when God instituted the old covenant, he didn't say draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. He wanted to scare the pants off the Jews, and he did. So they're at Sinai, and God showing up is fire, and thunder, and lightning, and a blaring trumpet that just gets louder and louder, and it's an earthquake, and God speaks. And you remember what the people do? They say, Moses, you go listen to him. We can't get there. They had put a border around the mountain to keep people from going up. They didn't need to worry about it, because they're not running up. They're running away. They're running the opposite direction, because God meant to frighten them. I'm holy, and you're not. And you can't approach me just on any way you want. It's my way you got to approach me my way. That was the institution of the Old Covenant. But you contrast that with the New Covenant under Jesus, and now you're told, you know what? You just come boldly into the throne of grace anytime you need mercy or help. That's the New Covenant. But it's because Jesus has saved. He's come as that high priest, and he's made the way. So we'll talk more about high priests in just a minute. 
So with Jesus as our priest, we're told to approach our holy God with confidence. Remember, I think it's Matthew's gospel. When Jesus dies on the cross, you remember what happens to the veil in the temple? It's torn in two. It's torn in two. And you remember what that represented? So God's presence is in the holy of holies. It's in the back of the temple. And only one guy once a year gets to go back there. So it's the holy of holies. So that, that veil being ripped in half, it exposed the holy of holies to the holy place. And of course, thereby, if the doors were open, to the rest of the nation the rest of the courts and the rest of the nation. It symbolized that the way to God was now open. And that's what we're reading here in Hebrews, that Jesus as the high priest. He's gone before us into heaven itself, God's real temple, so that now the way is open for us to follow him. He, he made the way for us as our new high priest to follow him right into heaven, right where God's at, anytime we have a need. Absolutely different than the old covenant. Do we pray with confidence? This is, I, I hope that you love to pray. And I love, by the way, Larry's being here on the 31st. That we can draw near with confidence anytime we have a need to God. That's the thought. So you could think of it as God is my father and he wants to hear every little thing. What's going on? Every little thing. But when we think of God as holy and, and the eternal Yahweh, here's the thought. Well, he is holy and he's set apart from men but Christ has made the way, and so now he invites you to come straight in to the holiest place you can get before the holy God, and you can pray with confidence every time you need some grace and some mercy. The way's open. Don't hold back. Go right on in. You know, the office is open. The door is open. Come right on in. That's what Jesus has provided for us. Guys, the degree to which we draw near with confidence is dependent on the degree of our confidence in the one who's made way for us. So if we know Jesus as high priest has made the way fully open, then we know it's safe to go in. We can follow him because the way truly has been made open. This is Hebrews 5.5. 5. Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Now, this is just like Psalm 110. That's a quote from Psalm 2, which is a, a kingly messianic text. Then he says, verse 6, as he says also in another place, now quoting Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, it qualifies this, describes it. In the days of his flesh, Jesus, he lived like a priest. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. Now, this isn't a moral perfection. This is he is perfect as a high priest because he's been tempted and suffered just like we are tempted and we suffer. So the human component of Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted and suffer. That's why he can be a perfect high priest. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And guys, obedience in Hebrews 4 is faith. Obedience is faith in Christ. Faith in Christ produces works of faith. But in Hebrews, obedience is faith. 
being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Here's that theme again. Hebrews 6.20, Jesus has gone into heaven as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus saves us by taking up the role of high priest in a new covenant. So the question becomes, what offering does this new high priest present for himself and for us? The answer is he offers himself. Jesus, our Savior, as our new high priest, offers himself as the means for our deliverance. So think about the role of a priest. The the role of a priest, he's a mediator, and he's got two aspects to his role. So one aspect is, as a mediator, he represents God to men. And so in that role, the priest, so to speak, this is especially true of the Levitical priesthood. If you read texts out of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, when the, the covenant community is back in the land of promise after Babylonian captivity, the priests read the word of God to them. They remind them about the covenant, and they explain it. Well, that's the role of a priest who's, who's heard from God, so he's, he's met with God, and now he turns and he faces men, and he gives men God's word. He communicates the truth of God to them. Uh, Malachi 2, I think it's verse 7, says, The lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his lips, for he's a spokesman of the Lord of hosts. That's that role. He represents God to men. But the other role is he represents men to God. And what you'll see throughout is that when priests represent men to God, it's always with sacrifice, it's always with offering, and it's always with a blood sacrifice. This is Hebrews 7, verses 26 and 27. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, that's the priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, Old Covenant, Old Testament high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. You remember they did lambs morning and night every day. First for his own sins, that would be on the Day of Atonement, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So God says Messiah is a priest like Melchizedek forever. And we say, okay, well, he's a priest, but he needs an offering. And this tells us what he offers is himself. So the high priest that institutes the new covenant does so by offering himself. The offering Jesus brought to God to represent us was himself. And guys, this is John 1.29, isn't it? You remember John the Baptist sees Jesus walking by and he says to his friends, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's this. So Jesus is the priest and Jesus is the Lamb of God who is offering, as it were, himself. Jesus as high priest offers Jesus as the Lamb of God for the sins of the world and for our salvation. That's how he saves us. This is Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing eternal redemption. In other words, once, once redemption has been accomplished, you don't need any more offerings. If you've got one offering that's adequate to cover sin, then the offerings are done. 
If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, this is referring to the way blood was shed for the sins of people under the old covenant, sanctify, make holy for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the writer is saying there was a temporary benefit to those animal sacrifices, the blood of those sacrifices. It was for a moment, but it could never be more than for a moment. We needed something eternal. We needed a one offering for sin that was good for eternity. And that's what's being said. That's what Jesus offered. Uh, Hebrews 9.26, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, by the sacrifice of himself. This is Hebrews 10.10. We have been sanctified, we've been made holy. That means we're acceptable to God through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified or made holy. It's the eternally adequate sacrifice that means you're eternally saved by a once-for-all offering that Jesus the high priest offered Jesus the Lamb of God. There's no other adequate means of being reconciled to God than through the offering of Jesus. If I want to be saved from sin, it's Jesus or it's not happening. Remember, God's the offended party. When we might say, if we talk about sin, I might say I sinned against someone else. And that's okay, that's true. But sin always primarily has to do with an offense against God. So you might do something wrong and no one else may know it, but God does. It's a sin. Sin is always a sin against God. We may harm other people as well, but the sin is always against God. God is the offended party, is the one that tells us what can adequately reconcile us back into his good graces. He's the one that says, this is the offense, this is what's required for that offense to be covered. To embrace Christ by faith as Savior is to know our sins are forgiven, our conscience clear, we have eternal life in Christ now, and we have the promise of joy in God's presence forevermore going forward, this eternal salvation. Acts 4.12, this is why Peter says boldly to the Jewish leaders that there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Do you want to be saved by your sin? It's through Jesus or it doesn't happen. Every hope of salvation apart from Jesus' offering of himself is a fool's hope, an empty promise guaranteed to disappoint in time and eternity. One of the things Jesus' offering of himself does, and this was mentioned in Hebrews 9, if I know who Jesus is and I know what he did and I know that who he is and what he did has been found acceptable by God the Father, the offended party, then if I confess my sin, my conscience is actually cleared. Nothing else can clear your conscience. Your conscience tells you you've done wrong. And we've done wrong in ways that we could never make right. So what would you do then? You can't go up and make up what that sin did, let's say. So your conscience tells you, you sinned and you've done harm and there's nothing you can do about it. But when we take that sin and we confess that to God, 
the blood of Christ, it says, cleanses our conscience because we know we're embracing Christ as offering and we understand that God has said, no, what Jesus has done is adequate and you are absolutely fully and forever forgiven. That's what the blood of Christ will do. Nothing else can clear your conscience. Only the blood of Christ. The question for us, Christmas or any other time, is simply, have we trusted Christ? Have we found salvation from sin because we've embraced the child born at the incarnation because Jesus really is Savior and we get it? Right? And we, we know we're sinful. We know we sin. The question is, have we embraced Christ as our Savior? That's the only question. And we, you don't wait for Resurrection Sunday. You know, you can believe in Jesus, you can trust Jesus, you can move from death to life on Christmas. That'd be fine, since Jesus came to save us from sin. Christmas would be a great time to get saved from the penalty of our sin, right? Because that's why he came. <clears throat> Through the incarnation, Jesus saves us from sin as both the priest and the offering. So in the new covenant instituted by his blood... Our sin is removed so that we stand before God as white as snow. Do you remember Isaiah 1? Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. You know, how, how deep a stain you might have in a garment, and yet he says, nope, doesn't matter how deep the stain, how red the stain, it'll be white as snow. Or Jude 24, I hope this rings a bell for you. Christ keeps us from stumbling and presents us blameless before the presence of God. God's glory with great joy. He does that because he's a priest who has offered himself. Hebrews 8.12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. When you've confessed your sin, there's a sense in which, and I go back and I remind God about it, God can say, what sin are you talking about? It's been forgiven. And scripture describes this different ways. What Jesus did in the incarnation in his role as priest and offering, and this is a warning, and it's a sober warning, and I offer it soberly. His offering was so great and so costly and so singularly and eternally satisfying to God the Father that to refuse Jesus as Savior is an affront to God and Christ for which there is no remedy. I say this as soberly and seriously as I can. This is Hebrews 2 verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There is no escape. There's only the absolute terrifying wrath and judgment of God to come. That's all that's left because that's a holy God's response to our unholy sin. We embrace Jesus as Savior because he saves, but to reject Christ is to expect nothing from God but his perfect justice, his righteous wrath on our sin we've rejected the only means of salvation guys for those who know christ and that's most of us i trust we still need christ as a high priest this comes up in first john 2 it doesn't say he's a high priest here it calls him our advocate but the effect is the same my little children i'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin don't sin but if you do when you do, right? John, it's hypothetical. Yeah, that's lovely, but it's when you sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. So when I sin, now guys, we're not saying 
Uh, Jesus' once-for-all offering gives us a perfect salvation, absolutely. But our relationship with the Father is harmed, isn't it, when we sin? There's distance created. So when we sin, we go to the Father and we confess our sin. And we do so with the confidence that not only did Jesus once for all cover the guilt of our sin with the offering of himself, but we also do so knowing Jesus is our advocate. He's our high priest right now before the Father so that even if Satan himself is before the throne of God accusing us justly for what we've done, Jesus, our high priest and advocate, says, Father, that sin's been covered by my blood. And we're good to go. And that is the truth. And our relationship's restored. And guys, when we do this, it was God himself in the flesh who said, if your brother sins against you seven times in the same day and comes and says, please forgive me, forgive him. God is as good as a requirement on us. If we go to God seven times a day for the same sin and say, Father, I blew it again, please forgive me, we go away forgiven. Forgiven. We need to embrace that as believers, not only the once-for-all sufficiency of Jesus' offering, but his current role as advocate and priest before God for our sake. That role, he's not just a king forever, he's a priest forever. That goes on. We have the benefit of that today. From Psalm 110, we know that today Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. That's what Psalm 110 says, sit at my right hand until your enemies are your footstool. Having removed all opposition and all that's unholy, in his second coming, like Melchizedek of old, Jesus, the King of righteousness and the King of peace, reigning from Jerusalem, the high priest of our faith and the offering of our salvation, will break out the bread and the wine and will feast in his kingdom forever Isaiah 25. That's what I'd like to end with. If you'd rise with me, we're going to read from Isaiah 25. This anticipates the day Jesus is ruling and the earth is covered with the knowledge of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. And he talks about there's this imagery like Melchizedek bringing forth the bread and the wine. God is setting a feast and we'll be there together. Is that on behind me? Have we got it? Okay. Let's read this together. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation.